The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. On uh, faith is uh, the topic of acceptance. And uh, I see this as uh, not a beginner's practice so much, but the way I'd like to talk about it, it's uh, as practice gets much more developed, there comes a time when uh, some deep level of acceptance characterizes uh, the faith that we have or represents it. And in the way I've been offering these talks over this week's this week, there's a progression, um, and uh, the Buddha's teachings often follows a progressive path of practice. Uh, it's organized by the different kind of levels or depth of uh, where we can go in practice. And of course, we don't have to necessarily follow that linearly. Uh, people can jump around, they can go backwards, they can go in a spiral and develop stronger and stronger. But uh, to go through the little journey of this week, uh, faith is, uh, uh, the, initi- the initial idea of faith is that faith or inspiration that inspires us to start the practice. Confidence is the, uh, what gives strength to the beginning of our practice because we believe in it, we value it, we think it's possible. We, we believe in ourselves and we have confidence in what we're doing so we can put ourselves into it. As we start practicing and getting feedback from the practice and the feeling some of the benefits of it, then there can grow a, a, a growing conviction that this really works and this is valuable and important. And then um, the, um, with a strong conviction, certainly we can put give ourselves more confidently into the practice. But at some point, we experience something that we learn to trust. That it's not just our efforts that are happening here, but um, in a sense, in in Buddhist language, the Dharma is happening, or the practice is practicing us. As we put ourselves into the Dharma, into the practice, there are uh, forces that get released or opened or... um, uh, conditions that come together that allow something to begin unfolding that is not our doing anymore. It's not something we make it happen. We enable it to happen. We are the condition for it. And to trust this deeper movement of the Dharma moving through us um, becomes relevant at some point. And then uh, as the practice uh, uh, develops and grows and moves through us, and we have a stronger and stronger sense that there is... um, Uh, we don't have to go back to the old patterns that we have of attachment, of greed, of conceit. There's a whole other way of living a life. And then then it comes a deep acceptance of the deep underlying truths of reality, truths of life, (coughs) truths of our life, that uh, are a little bit maybe even counterintuitive in ordinary life. So, for example, there's a deep acceptance of not basing one's life on me, myself, and mine. Not basing one's life on the small ego, the small sense of identification and contraction we have about me, myself, and mine. And this is not a denial of ourselves that we don't base our life on this. It's actually the opposite. When we base our life on kind of too much in this conceit of me, myself, and mine, that's a way of denying ourselves paradoxically. It's like 
limiting our lives and shutting ourselves off from the wider field of who we are and what moves through us. And to accept, uh, you know, that there's much more here than the usual understanding of self. Um, to have an appreciation of what in Buddhism is called not-self. Uh, rec- uh, at some point, there com- becomes a deep acceptance of that. Oh, yes, this is true. This is right. And kind of getting out of our own way so that uh, this acceptance allows something to flow through us and move through us. There's a deeper acceptance uh, of the impermanence of phenomena, the impermanence of life, the inconstancy of it, whether it's the impermanence of life and death that sooner or later that we change and grow old and we die. And there is a a time where a deep acceptance of this as being a natural part of life, it's completely natural that we should be participating in the changing, flowing nature of birth and death and passing of things. Um, uh, Rather than resisting it or holding on to life really hard or being afraid, but kind of a deep acceptance, a trust in this being part of this natural flow of the life going through that we're part of. There's also a deep acceptance in what's called, it's sometimes called the patience acceptance of the emptiness of all phenomena. The patience acceptance that uh, all things uh, are, are not really substantial in a particular way they're not substantial as something that we can cling to. Or as the Buddha said, Buddha said, nothing, worth, nothing whatsoever is worth clinging to. And to have a deep acceptance, yes, this is true, um, that yes, nothing whatsoever is worth clinging to. And, um, and uh, you know, that's definitely counterintuitive for many of us, you know, clinging is can be such an ingrained and deep part of life. It's how we know how to be safe, how we know how to get what we want. And sometimes clinging has worked. Uh, Sometimes people accommodate us with our clinging and we cling enough to some people and they want to take care of us or we chase certain desires and sometimes we get them. But there's a cost and it's certainly a cost that really uh, being separated from our innate potential for freedom, for the kind of deep peace and happiness of freedom that can come from a deep trust in life and a deep acceptance. Such deep acceptance that I I kind of think that the deepest acceptance, the deepest form of trust, the deepest form of faith, um, does not have um, an object. Objectless trust. Maybe that's illogical, but uh, just to exist, just to be alive and be free, and in a way, kind of trust or having a deep acceptance that uh, it doesn't, nothing that we're accepting, nothing that we're trusting, if it's anything, it's trusting not clinging. It's trusting not holding on. But the absence of clinging is not a thing. So just to trust this. And uh, one of the ways I understand this is that um, the beautiful way is that um, when the acceptance and the trust is deep, uh, other people might think or see you and think, oh, that person's really trusting or very accepting or at peace. Very. Um, But if you look in yourself, you don't find that 
because acceptance and trust at some point doesn't become something we do. Uh, It doesn't become something we can see. It's kind of like two people who are in very trying, difficult circumstances, and they both from the outside look like they're very patient. The first person is really triggered, is really reactive and upset about what's happening, but works really hard to relax, to be not caught in the reactivity, not act from it, and is able to be relatively calm in demeanor and way of being. And people say, oh, that person's calm or patient. The other person, same trying situation, and that person uh, is not triggered, has no reactivity, and doesn't have to work at being patient. In fact, in a sense, there's patience is not needed. Patience doesn't exist for that person because there's no necessity for it. Patience is then, that situation is not a, something a person's doing, even though that's what other people might interpret. And so in the same way, as the practice gets deeper and deeper, our freedom becomes larger and larger, our trust, our faith, our confidence, our conviction, and our deep acceptance of life becomes fuller and fuller. Um, it, it stops being something we do. It stops being something we can identify. And to accept this emptiness, to accept this l- absence of what has been supporting us for a long time is a beautiful thing because that, that matures when there's no need anymore for faith, when there's no need for confidence and conviction. There's no need for trust and no need for acceptance because we don't cling to anything, because we're at peace, we're at ease. There's no reactivity. And people might see you when you have that kind of way of being and say, oh, that person's a person of faith. That person has a lot of trust and a lot of conviction or a lot of acceptance. But if you look inside of yourself, you won't find those things. What you'll find is your freedom. May faith support you and take you all the way to a place of freedom from all clinging so you can experience deep happiness and well-being, not just for yourself, but as a gift to others. May all beings be happy. Thank you. Okay, so um, sorry about that little glitch coming out of meditation. I was kind of not quite thinking about what was next. I was a little bit excited about the possibility of having some interaction with the YouTube audience and maybe seeing if there were some uh, questions that they might have and and um, So we'll see if there's any. Someone says that um, it feels a bit off to say, to wish for all beings to be happy when 
people are in pain, some people are in pain and in very difficult circumstances. Uh, classically, uh, uh, when we do this kind of metta aspiration or metta expression of our goodwill, um, it can be also be more specific. It can be, uh, uh, may people be safe. May people be free of affliction. Uh, may people have ease with whatever their circumstances might be. And when I say the word, may all beings be happy, um, it's really a, um, an umbrella term for, uh, for them to have greater sense of well-being. It's an expression of my goodwill, that I care. And, you know, uh, how exactly my wish is going to make a difference for the world, I don't know. Uh, there's many ways. And when I do these kinds of dedication of merit or this metta, I often like to reflect practically about how can I actually do things that makes the life of others somewhat better. And if the people I'm with are sick or the people I'm with are in pain or, you know, have some challenge, uh, then when I think about it, I think about ways, small ways and big ways, that I could uh, make their life a little bit better. And, um, but in shorthand, that means helping them become happy. Something like that. Yeah, how do I deal with fear during these times? Um, you know, now with the virus and people are afraid of getting the virus and, you know. So there's a variety of ways of working with fear and fear of the current illness that's uh, spreading. Um, one is, uh, can be for some people, is to do a little bit of uh, a reading from very as reputable sources as you can about uh, what this virus is all about. And, um, and certainly how to care for ourselves, what we can expect from it, and, um, and, uh, and put it in a, hopefully in a context or perspective that uh, doesn't make it um, a big, you know, a monster. Um, it's certainly a challenge for all of us. It's certainly something to take seriously and to protect ourselves from. But I think sometimes the imagination uh, uh, gets triggered by the media, by the news, by the uh, by our own imagination of what's coming, what's possible, and and um, and so to be you know a little bit reflective and wise about you know what's actually going on in this situation and how to take care of ourselves. I find it uh, meaningful to um, to have confidence uh, that I'm doing the best I can given the circumstances. And then come what may, you know, if, uh, if, if I get sick, then uh, I'll do the best I can with that. If I'm going to die from this illness, so that's rather unfortunate, but then I'll do the best I can with that. And I'm supported so much by this practice I do that, you know, this idea of what I have faith in and confidence, conviction, trust in, acceptance of, is so uh, powerfully connected to the Dharma practice and uh, and uh, and I trust mindfulness. I trust the path. I trust non-clinging, uh, probably more than anything else. And um, and so, you know, even if I was going to die, uh, that's the time for practice. I trust the practice then. I hope I've trusted practice then. Um, I feel like some of the 
you know, the years of meditation I've done has really taught me that uh, even dying is an opportunity. Even dying is a time where I don't have to succumb to uh, my clinging or my, you know, or, or to lose touch with my confidence, my strength to keep practicing, keep practicing. That said, uh, fear is a very common phenomena and uh, it can be quite uh, devastating and quite uh, uh, difficult to live with fear. And I think anyone who practices mindfulness for any length of time should expect that sooner or later that fear will take center stage of their practice. That uh, part of what we want to do is, is in the appropriate way, in a careful way, in a in a, in a uh, maybe in a gradual way, is to uh, study our fear, get to understand it, get to know it, learn how to work with it. And one of the ways that I've worked with fear, was really been important for me, is to keep feeling it in my body. Where's the fear living in my body? And one of the reasons that's so helpful is that where I get in trouble with fear has been with my stories that I make, the imagination I have. And, and, you know, it can be quite vivid. And it kind of reinforces the fear, telling ourselves the same story over and over again. The physical experience of fear is not a story. It's just the physical manifestation of it. And when I can feel it in my body, then I can, it's, rel- it's easier sometimes to just tap into it gently and lovingly. I had this idea of holding my fear uh, in the cupped hands of my uh, mindfulness, of my awareness. And that as I hold the fear and, uh, and just be present for it in my body, feel the sensations of the butterflies or the tightness or the uh, tension that I might have or tightness that might be connected to fear, just hold it gently with this idea that I'm, I'm, uh, uh, here, to, I'm here to help my fear feel safe. So rather than having fear be our problem, fear being the boogeyman, rather than the fear is something unwanted that we're trying to push away, I kind of imagine the fear is almost like a person who, uh, what the person wants is for us to be a safe presence for them, a calm presence for them, to be with them, sit with them, listen to them. And for a frightened person, to be accompanied and have someone sit next to them and hear them, it can really settle them and quiet them and begin to kind of soften the grip of fear. And so to do that for ourselves, by learning to identify where the fear is in the body, bring our attention to it, hold it there, and then experiment and look for ways that we can help our fear feel safe feel like it's, let it know that it's okay for it to be there right now. It's okay for it, you know, to just exist and be felt and it's okay. And that's the great mantra of fear, it's okay. And and this holding fear and letting it feel safe is an alternative to being swept away in the fear or preoccupied and caught with it. So it does require a certain degree of strength from our, our side to find some way to be with it, to hold it. And as soon as it starts feeling like it's too much to do that, then it's important to step away, go for a walk, go talk to a friend, do something else until you feel you're stable enough 
to come back and do the same thing over and over again. And the path of mindfulness is slowly over time to learn how to have tremendous capacity to be free while being present for the fear. I hope that's helpful. So maybe one more. confused about the devotion to practice and clinging. The difference between devotion and clinging. That's a nice question. Um, Maybe sometimes they look the same. And so it makes sense to be a little bit confused. And uh, and if the clinging is just a little bit, um, maybe it's, it's okay to have some clinging. I mean, we can't expect to just, you know, hear some Buddhist teachings and then not cling ever again or you know, just turn it off right away. Um, it, you know, even though Buddhism talks a lot about non-clinging and the value of it, um, it, it's not a crime to cling by itself. We don't have to feel like we're a bad person if we cling or that we're doing it wrong if we cling. It's just painful if we cling. And if we want not to have that pain, then we want to find another way. So you want to be a little careful not to be too negative about clinging, even though the path is to the freedom of clinging. And so if you're more relaxed a little bit within reason of clinging, then if you're mindful, uh, the path is self-correcting. When the time comes to recognize when clinging is a limitation, mindfulness will show you when that is. So if there is some clinging with the devotion, then uh, sooner or later you'll you'll feel it and work through it. But you don't have to be ahead of yourself. You can just wait until that time comes. And even if you have some little inkling, there's some clinging, it might not be the time to, to look at it. Maybe it's next week or a little bit later. With devotion, you have a strong devotion to practice or to Buddhism or something. Um, uh, if you have a good friend that you trust, uh, you might, might ask them, is your devotion being a problem for anyone? Do they, does anyone think that you're over you know, doing it, over, overdoing it in some way or becoming a zealot or something. And sometimes getting feedback from someone else and is good. And if you, they tell you, oh, no, there's no problem here, then just continue and don't worry so much about the clinging uh, until the mindfulness flushes it out. If your friend says, yeah, you're a little bit difficult to talk to these days because all you ever talk about is this, you know, what you're devoted to, then maybe there's the clinging involved and then maybe... You know, maybe you stop and take a good look. Clinging always involves contraction, tightness, discomfort. Uh, Devotion, I think, I believe devotion in its essence is something that's opening, relaxing, and it brings a sense of ease or peace or well-being, this devotion. It's kind of like the difference between uh, feeling kind of open-hearted love and a yes to what's going on versus having um, neediness to have and want to possess something like a person or something. And, um, and so that's what occurs to me. And, um, and uh, if the, the question comes a little bit because you have devotion, um, then uh, I want to appreciate that and value that and, and uh, want to tend carefully to the seedling of devotion so that it can grow and develop and become a support for you. So um, 
thank you, everyone. And uh, if this was nice to take a few minutes like this for questions and some responses, maybe on Fridays we can use that a little bit after the little talk. And I hope that these sittings are nice for you, certainly nice for me to come here and sit and be able to share this this way. And uh, I hope that you have a, a quiet and and reflective and peaceful weekend. And maybe I'll see some of you on Monday. Thank you.